Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 139, a conversation with Dr. Nargis Flores, who is an incredible clinician and researcher. And I am so excited to have her here. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about her before we get started. She is originally from Venezuela and completed her internal medicine residency at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She is now the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program and a thoracic medical oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Harvard Cancer Center, and a member of faculty at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Flores's clinical interests include targeted therapy for lung cancer and the care of women with lung cancer, including unique aspects of cancer survivorship. She is the principal investigator of the SHAWL study, which stands for Sexual Health Assessment in Women with Lung Cancer. And this is the largest study to date evaluating sexual dysfunction in women with lung cancer. She is also a leading and productive researcher in cancer health disparities, gender and racial discrimination in medical education and medicine. And she'll talk a little bit about all of those things today. She is one of the co-founders of the Twitter community, hashtag Latinas in Medicine, which has over 8,500 members globally. And in 2019, she founded the Flores Lab, which focuses on lung cancer, social justice issues in medicine and medical education. And members of her lab are truly agents of change. Dr. Flores is truly, truly changing medicine. And I am so thrilled to share this conversation with you. And with that, let's get right into it. And it is my absolute honor to welcome Dr. Flores to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Hi, everyone. I am so thrilled to be here with Dr. Nargis Flores. Uh, Dr. Flores, how are you? I'm good and so delighted to finally be here in this podcast with you. I've waited for months. I know, we've been talking about it for a long time. Um, so can you tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, so my name is Dr. Narjus Flores, formerly Juma. So if you may sound familiar, I used to have a, another last name. So I'm a thoracic medical oncologist that focuses in younger women at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and also the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program here, and an Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. You do a lot, and thank you for really making the time to be here. And, you know, you do a lot of lung work of lung cancer in women. And tell me a little bit about what people should know about lung cancer in women. So there are many things we can talk about. It. Let's talk about the changes in incident and the changes of uh, of the disease over time, and then we talk about other things. So the number one thing is that since 2018, we have seen that younger women are getting more lung cancer than younger men. So these are patients less than 49 years old, and this is irrespective of tobacco use. We are seeing more and more younger women 
the anti-nose with lung cancer compared to men. So the statistics have shifted, but the public awareness has not shifted. shifted. This was reported by Jamal and all in a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that unfortunately was in the news high slides for like two days. Um, and we haven't continued to talk about this. Similar reports have been reported in Taiwan, France, Spain, and Brazil, in which more younger and younger women, particularly never uses our tobacco, are being diagnosed with lung cancer. So it's becoming an epidemic, but unfortunately it's a silent epidemic because lung cancer is full of stigma. It's believed to be the disease that's caused by patients. Mm -hmm. We, in fact, these changes in incidence are in never smokers. And, you know, it, it's so interesting that, you know, the stigma of smoking draw. I mean, it, it's crazy to me that we are not providing people with the care that they need because of stigmas. I mean, we see this all the time, you know, in, especially in women. But it's just fascinating to me that we continue to see this. And why do we know why we're seeing this increased incidence in never smokers? So one of the challenges about trying to understand this is that despite lung cancer being the number one killer of women, so more women die of lung cancer every day in the United States than colorectal, breast, uterine, and cervical combined. So I tell my patients, it's like two 797 boys are crashing every day or women with lung cancer in the U.S. Despite that, lung cancer is one of the least funded cancers by the National Cancer Institute. So there is significant less funding for the disease to conduct some of these studies. Additionally, I think one of the challenges is that we have focused a lot in therapeutics when it comes to lung cancer. We have made great progress since the target therapy, which is very important. But I think we need to reset and go back to like, why are younger women getting this disease? And when you look at the data, and I call tobacco the smoking cordon. You remember during the wall, the Cold War, it was the iron curtain between yep. the U.S. and the Soviet Union. So I call tobacco that smoking curtain. When you remove that, two-thirds of the cases of lung cancer are in women. So in fact, when you remove that confounder, lung cancer is a disease of women. But it's not seen like that. It's often seen as a disease of older men that have a very extensive smoking history. So there's a lack of awareness in that also influence the funding mechanisms, right? If you don't know it's a problem, then you won't prioritize it as a problem. You know, and it's it's interesting because um, in the uh, the new national cancer plan proposed by you know the Biden and the moon administration, the the cancer moonshot. One of the things that they actually are focusing on is increased. How do we you know how do we really focus on prevention and how do we focus on risk reduction? And I think. It's really excellent that we're moving, hopefully, the needle in that direction to do some of that work. Yeah, I think it's important. Um, I think we have blamed a lot to tobacco, and we have not studied a lot of things extensively. Mm -hmm. You know, for never tobacco uses, radon is the number one cause that we know of. Mm -hmm. And it's very particularly attached to gender, because we know women are most likely to spend time at home. And uh, it's prolonged exposures, mostly in the basement, and particularly in the Midwest and other areas, women stay more time at home compared mm -hmm. to men. And something that we know also that linked to disparities is a lot of housing services or housing that is sponsored by governmental agencies, they don't have frequent checks or radar at all. So 
and even ourselves, right? You buy your house, you check the radon, you live in the same house for 25 years, and you don't check it again. So there is, you know, that's the number one risk factor that we know. Mm -hmm. But um, there is still no, like, a very accurate way to say this is how you do it. There's many things that affect how you measure radon. But to your listen, I think it's very important that if you bought your house a long time ago, it's very important to be rechecking radon at your house uh, constantly because the weather, the movement of the ground, and all of that will change the levels in your house. That I'm like putting that number one on my to-do list because we, when we moved into our house almost, I think it was seven, no, six years ago, we did read on remediation because the levels were borderline and, you know, we haven't rechecked them since. So I am bumping that to my to-do list. Um, and what, you know, is, and we were talking a little bit about this earlier, but, you know, with heart disease, for example, right, women tend to present with more atypical symptoms, they tend to get, um, you know, they're not having that crushing chest pain, that the elephant on their chest that we think of with men. Tell me, are there discrepancies or disparities in how women present with lung cancer symptoms compared to men? So there are no obvious symptoms presentations, but one of the challenges with lung cancer is that early stage has no symptoms. So stage one and stage two have no, they, they don't tend to have symptoms. And the most common symptom remains a cough. And um, it tends to be hard, especially right now, I just got a notification right before we connected, high pollen levels, right? So there's a lot of things that affect the patient and can influence the cough, right? Is the allergy. Now with COVID in the last, three years, I think my patient would get swapped an average five times before somebody does something else because it can be COVID, right? So the cough is the most common symptom. And patients that may or may not have tobacco exposure, shortness of breath, tends to be the most fronting symptom to go and see the doctor. And for women, what many women repair is chest pressure or chest discomfort. And that is a problem because a lot of these women, a lot of my patients had shown to the primary care office, doctor's office, urgent care, or the ER, and they get a chest pressure, a chest discomfort. Their IKG, they get troponins, they're negative. And what is the number two diagnosis for a woman with chest pressure? Anxiety. And mm -hmm. that's all gender related. Yeah. Especially the younger women with children. I've seen it. I haven't studied. I have a grant out there. Hopefully it gets funded. Um, how many gender roles are different when it comes to the symptom of chest pressure. So there's, I have a patient two weeks ago that was told, you're just very anxious. You're the mother of two. And actually it was a six centimeter mass. Wow. That was giving her the symptom. So a lot of my patients have been told, this is anxiety. You're just very anxious. Oh, they're very common. You have asthma without pulmonary function test. Oh, chest is right. You have asthma. And a lot of these women go to several courses on antibiotics and inhalers without a previous history or asthma. So I think anybody who has gone to a course on antibiotics, it doesn't get better, they should ask their primary care doctor for a check that's red. Let's start with that and to investigate further because data from my own research shows that these women may go to the median or two lines of antibiotics before a check that's red is done. And, you know, it's so, and I think it partly because people want to 
think it's a benign cause, but also if it's not top of mind, right? I think I think breast cancer is very top of mind in some cases, not always, but lung cancer is not. And despite the fact, as you said, it is the number one killer. Yeah, so there's two things about that. One, the um, American Lung Foundation uh, did a survey in 2019, before COVID, right? When you can stop people in the streets and ask questions. <laughs> so they interviewed over a thousand women, regular women working in the streets in different states, and asked them, what is the number one killer of cancer of women, right? The statistics have not changed. It has been lung cancer since 1987. Only 1% of those women walking on the street reported that lung cancer was the number one killer. There were cancers like sarcoma or primary brain tumors that have a higher percentage than lung cancer. But that just brings the lack of awareness. Mm -hmm. Sarcoma, which is so rare. Yeah. Right? So these women in the street say, yeah, sarcoma kill more women than lung cancer. So there is the lack of awareness, not only for the providers, but also for the general public. Because when my patients, my younger patients come into clinic, 50% of them are in so disbelief. And many of them told me, if this was breast cancer, I get it. Mm -hmm. Lung cancer. And it's just like, it's like the hope that I would tell them is not lung cancer. That is any other cancer. And I think it's, Something that we really have to work hard and I'm trying to do is to create awareness on my women. And I don't call them my patient, I call them my lady. Mm-hmm. Um, because many of these younger women are diagnosed at stage four, over 75% of that, when treatment options are very limited. But if you track them back, they have things. And and something that is also unique to women is the gender roles and the obligation. I have a patient that told me that she was diagnosed with early stage lung cancer because the train was running early. And let me explain that. She needed to, she was works full time, mother too, mother or a dog too, wife. And she had this whole list of things and her health was always in the bottom list, right? Get the kids to school, get the dog to the bed, do this for the husband. So a lot of women tend to sometimes put other people's priorities first than their health. And yeah. she said that she made it to her primary care office because the train was running early and she thought she could do it before going and picking up the kids of school. Well, you know, it's a, such a broader discussion about women not taking, making time for themselves and, and not, you know, being really excellent care takers and caregivers and not prioritizing their own health. What do you see in terms of this further along racial and ethnic lines? Well, there is a, let's talk with, with minorities and then we're going to talk about intersectionality. So for black men, they're the group that suffer the most disparities with lung cancer. To a point that we know that black men are significantly less likely to be offered curative surgery for lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And this is being referred even by former Henry Ford president, he had a speech in which he mentioned that why black men are not getting lung cancer surgery. Still an issue. These patients are not taken to surgery. There have been newer interventions that have helped with that, but that's the group that has the worst outcome, black men with lung cancer. The second group with the worst outcome are women of color. And this is where intersectionality comes to play. 
because they have all the gender aspects that are negatively for lung cancer. They're positive for lung cancers for lung cancer. And then they have their racial and ethnic minorities. In, in a study that was done by Dr. Warner at Mass General, it shows that if you're a woman of color that qualifies for lung cancer screening, you are six times less likely offer be offered lung cancer screening by your primary care doctor compared to a white man. So this is the intersection between gender and race and how negatively affects these patients. For diagnosis, for clinical trials, and for survival as a whole. It's it's re, it's remarkable. I mean, the the striking disparities between gender and minority. Do you see that translate also to clinical trials in terms of accrual, you know, accrual to trials and people being offered clinical trials? Because we definitely see that in the breast cancer world. Yeah. So for lung cancer, uh, this is research from my own lab. Um, the recruitment of minorities and lung cancer clinical trials, this is data from 2018 that first published, over the last 14 years has declined instead of improved. But we're not doing better, we're doing worse. And then we try to divide data uh, by gender. So the trials that led to the approval of immunotherapy in lung cancer only included 30% women. Many of those were white women that were very young and fit. So we approved therapy in a majority male population. And then the drugs get approved. And my own research has shown that women have higher immune-related adverse events and more severe immune-related adverse events. These are side effects that come from the immunotherapy. Your immune system is hyperactive, so it attacks your normal organs. So, but why is the problem with that? Is that we learn based on clinical trials, right? And that's how we do our practices. But now we're learning that women are most likely to have diabetes type one women, most likely to have pancreatitis, which are severe complications most likely to have renal dysfunction because our immune systems are very different than men. We supposed to host a guest, which is the fetus, right? Mm -hmm. So just starting from that, our immune system is different. And data from the influenza vaccine shows that women have a more strong immune response to the vaccine compared to men. So just the standard of those two points makes our immune systems very different. But less than 30% of the patients in these trials were women. So when you try to do subgroup analysis, sometimes data is so small that you won't find a difference. So we encounter the issues after the drug is approved. And then there is no clear guidelines. And, and we know that hypothyroidism is significantly higher in women. You know, I think the other part is that because we don't see these in these studies, right, because these patients are not adequately represented, when these patients get the drugs and get these side effects, doctors and healthcare providers aren't always aware of them because we haven't seen it in trials. And I, I've heard, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard about people's symptoms getting dismissed because, well, that's not supposed to happen to you. Yeah. And um, when it comes to side effects, um, there's also gender bias that affects that. That has been reported in breast cancer and lung cancer and other cancers. Women are often disregarded when mm -hmm. they offer, when they present adverse events because women complain more and that's what the disease is. 
So many of these women are disregarded when they present with symptoms with lung cancer, and after they're diagnosed and they're treated, they're also disregarded. And there's some unique side effects to these drugs to women, like vaginal dryness, uh, vaginal discharge. That even when you mention it, the primary oncologist is not familiar and it's completely brushed up. Like, uh, I get to give an example, a new patient, a second opinion that came to see me. And I'm talking and at the end I said, is there anything else you want to talk about it that we haven't talked about? It's just like, I don't know, because I keep saying it, I'm so ashamed. It's like, what happened? Well, I have a different, different vaginal order. And I was like, you do? Okay, here, a gown, I will be right back. And she was in shock because I need to do a vaginal exam to see what was happening. And it was just a bacterial vaginosis that was easily treated, mm -hmm. right? But she was reporting these symptoms for around four months. And because it wasn't like overlapping with the expertise of her oncologist, you know, there were no address. But she wasn't sexually active because she was so ashamed of the other. And she was ashamed or like doing activities that included closer people. Mm -hmm. That she was like, ah, they invite me to the movies, but just I thought they could smell me. Yeah. And 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 these things impact quality of life so much. I mean you know, sometimes I, I was looking at something today and someone was talking about vaginal discharge and, you know, and it was so, it was debilitating. And someone was like, well, I wouldn't, you know, necessarily stop the medication over vaginal discharge, but, you know, that for somebody could be really, really impactful. And I think my goal with these conversations is for patients to listen and really feel empowered to say to their oncologist, you know, this is, this is bothering me. This is not working for me, right? To have that really honest conversation with your doctor. And I think nothing is out of context. Like I told my patients, anything that's bothering you, anything, even if it's your husband that's bothering you right now, <laughs> tell me what's happening. Because that's also important. You're in a high stress situation with cancer and family dynamics affects your quality of life, right? Oh, we I have to find counseling, but we have to do something. Tell me what is bothering, right? I had a patient a few weeks ago that told me that her kids were driving her crazy. They were overprotecting her. So I schedule a telemedicine visit with everybody in a suit. And I say, she's doing fine now. She wants to do things on her own. And that that's part of survivorship. That's part of cancer care, right? Because they need to have their independence, but they have their entire life, you know? And when they're doing better, because we cannot predict the future, we need to give them that independence back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I don't know what would happen next year to her, but I know that right now she can go grocery shopping and she wants to go grocery shopping. So that's part of her survivorship. Like she always did it. And she doesn't like how her kids pick up products either. So and, and no, but that those conversations are really important. And sometimes I, I found that like, the, you know, the, people's family members will listen more to me than to the patient, right? Like if you get on and say, look, I think they're, they're doing great. They're able to do all these things now. It, 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 it's taken a little bit more seriously, I think sometimes. Yeah, and I think there's also the other screen, right? Because what I see, because I see so many women, I see that sometimes they also need permission to drop things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all, oh, all, oh, yeah. I. I don't know, six months ago, my patient's like, I need to reschedule my infusion. I need to take the doctor to the vet. And I call her back because I got a message saying that. And I was like, who's your vet? 
I call the vet and say, she needs her cancer treatment. Can you see this doc tomorrow? <laughs> they're like, yeah. Okay. I call my patient back. which is like, they're going to see the doc tomorrow. And she's like, okay. Because a lot of my women, again, at the presentation, and even during treatment, they put their health last. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They put their health last. And there was a recent, last year, a recent publication in Lancet that was mentioned that patients that get immunotherapy after 4 p.m., they have worse outcome. It was a black and white outcome. And I was like, hmm. So I, of course, me and my mentee wrote a letter to the editor. We, in 24 hours of the paper publishing, because for women, sometimes there is no choice with childcare, especially younger women. Mm -hmm. Only can get the infusion at that time. So you're saying they have no outcome? This, you need to take into account the social determinants of health and that many times patients need to keep their job, to keep their insurance, to keep getting therapy. So I think we need to stop seeing cancer as a black and white, but as a result of the interactions in our patients' lives. How many mistakes like? Yeah, I, I think that's that's so well said. I want to pivot a little bit um, to talking about sexual health because I know this is a big focus of yours and something that I talk about a lot. And so tell me some of the work that you've done, what you found with sexual health and lung cancer. I want to hear all of it. So sexual health and lung cancer is still in 1999. <laughs> and let's be very honest. I don't feed in the genes that was wearing in 1999. <laughs> like I don't, I one of my legs, maybe we feed in it. And we barely are using therapies in lung cancer besides two drugs that are from 1999. Mm -hmm. So everything in lung cancer has moved forward to sexual health. So we conducted the SHOW study, which is Sexual Health Assessment in Women with Lung Cancer, S-H-A-W-L, which is the largest study today about sexual health in women with lung cancer. We didn't have a lot of competition. The previous study was from 1999. Um, so we opened the study in the pandemic happened Now we were about to open the study and then everything shut down. So we were like, oh, it's going to be two weeks. Let's see. Let's wait it out. <laughs> yeah. What? By July, we have to jump and do this study. So we have to modify the study. We work with the lung cancer registry to have a national uh, representation and patients were asked to complete promise validated questions plus additional questions that are tailored to lung cancer. We interviewed over 230 women and the results were actually striking. I know my women had sexual dysfunction, but I didn't know that 77 77% of the women replying to the study had moderate to severe sexual dysfunction. That, that's a lot, I mean, that's significant. And that included patients with early stage all the way to stage four. And we noticed that they were understanding the issue of recall bias, right? You don't remember everything. They reported that many of them didn't have those issues on the diagnosis of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So subsequently, we tried to find out what is the root problem of the sexual dysfunction. And what we found is that the, the issues that affect sexual health in women with lung cancer are very different than other cancers. And that's why interventions that have been developed for breast cancer are not really effective for patients with lung cancer. So one of the number one issues was shortness of breath. That has affected their sexual health. That's very unique to lung cancer. You have 
radiation, you have those surgery, right? That will affect your capacity to be able to do certain positions or certain types of uh, sexual activity. Something that we also found is depression was very high in this population. And that's related to the isolation related to the cancer. People are now forthcoming about their lung cancer diagnosis. So patients feel often isolated and younger women don't know anybody who has metastatic lung cancer, right? Like it may be easier to find somebody who has breast cancer. Yeah. So these two findings led to hopefully a subsequent intervention and me actually asking my patients, where are the sexual positions that you're using? And working with a physical therapist, and now we have a sheet that has some of the sex intercourse positions, because there's many ways of intimacy and sexual health that require less lung capacity. So we often feel we need like this multi-million intervention. And here's a sheet with top five positions that you don't need that much of your lung capacity. So we also found that vaginal dryness and vaginal discomfort is very common. And that's related to some of the targeted therapies and the immunotherapy. The target therapies are highly used, highly used in younger women without cancer. So uh, vaginal um, lubricants and moisturizers are something that I often talk with my patients. And I did have to tell you this story because I don't tell you this story, I think it wouldn't be enough. So I have a tiny uh, Portuguese patient that uh, she knows, she told me to tell the story, everyone, <laughs> that she has a flip phone. And she said she will never go to a sex shop, never. So she's very Catholic. And she's like, can your son, I, I remember saying it, can your son, and I tell myself, never mind, your son is not gonna order that for you. <laughs> and I say, well, we have it at the geese shop. And she's like, what if somebody sees me going in there and buying it? So I worked with a sexual therapist here at Dana Farber, and we found the benefits of coconut oil. So she went to Costco and bought the biggest container I have seen in my life with coconut <laughs> oil. And then she proceeded to make tiny little Ziploc bags and bring them to clinic. She would come to clinic two hours before and she would ask anybody if they were my patients and then we give it a little bag of coconut I oil. Love it. Hey, great for vagina, great for vagina. Yeah. And we see all my patients coming with the little bag. The problem is, the, 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 the conclusion about the story is one, we often can find solutions that don't require a lot, right? And second, it's just opening the, the door about sexual health. Yeah. She's so comfortable talking about it. She told me she's having best sex life than when she was in her 20s. And I see her coming with her husband and I have seen the change of their relationship. Even the cancer is not doing as good as we wanted it. They're coming and holding and they're like, you know, they're, that relationship has improved. Mm -hmm. That's how, how important it is that we talk about sexual health. And I will tell you, when I, I ask about it pretty much all the time, and a lot of times people, wait, what, did you just ask me how my sex life is? Like, no one has asked them before. And, you know, it takes them a second to say, okay, wait, you know, should I open up? But I think, like you said, the more we normalize it, the more we talk about it, the more conversation and people will actually feel saying, oh, I'm not alone. You know, others are going through this. I love what you did with the sex positions. I think that is brilliant. It, it is, it's so easy, honestly. Um, but I told my patients, let's talk about your sexual health or how is your sexual health? 
And if you don't feel comfortable, I encourage you to send me a patient gateway message mm -hmm. because sometimes writing it is less uncomfortable. Yeah. But what I know is first time they say, no, no problem. The second visit, when they come back after I ask that, they're like, well, let me tell you what's happened. So knocking in the door doesn't mean the door will open right away. Mm -hmm. But then you have to wait. And sometimes that is not important to your patients, and that's also okay. But I often talk about sexual health beyond intercourse because cuddling, snuggling with your partner is part of intimacy, right? Auto sex, anal sex, many other ways of showing, you know, your sexuality, self-stimulation. Mm -hmm. Yep. And something that's very unique to women, and I'm very sure it's a big issue in breast cancer too, is body image. We have been told that our body is supposed to be this, it's supposed to be that. And after you have a long scar after this for surgery, or you have a scars for radiation, or yeah, you just wrinkle with chemotherapy. That's what my patient told me. You just wrinkle. I told them, get naked, look at yourself in the mirror, and tell yourself three things that you like about your body. And that doesn't require $3 million funding. And I look at yourself naked in the body. It's going to be like naked in a mirror. It's going to be painful the first time you do it because we're often told you need supposed to look like this, be like that. Three things you like. The next week, six things you like. And I can see how their confidence actually changes with that. Mm -hmm. And you know, get a, get a mirror and look down there how things are. What is the last time you look at your vulva yeah. or your anus? And they're like, I never have. Well, tomorrow you're going to. And, yeah. and, and, you know, it's like sexual education and cancer care, but it's opening the door and creating that confidence. And I think the other part, and I, I had um, Kim, Kim Holden, who's a breast cancer survivor and a sex therapist on my podcast a couple of years ago, and she's wonderful. And one of the things she taught me is really being comfortable being naked, like you said, alone, and then with your partner without the expectation of having sex. You know, just read a book next to each other, but naked, you know, just start to explore that body a little bit. And, and you know, I think those kind of moments, because I think we're so focused, like you said, on sex, that there's so much more to sexuality than just the act of intercourse. Yeah, and touching yourself, finding what you like, what you don't like, and communicating. Um, and, and sometimes there's, I think there's a lot of responsibility at the moment. And female masturbation is full of so much stigma, but male masturbation is not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had a patient that told me, it's like, now I'm a DJ. So yeah, keep DJing out there. It's fine to do that. <laughs> you know, um, normalize it. But not everybody wants to talk about it. And that's also something important to mention. There are patients that don't want to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's good to respect that. You can revisit but there are some people that don't want to because I had a patient that say, every time we talk about sexual health and I don't have interest, I feel like I'm broke. It's okay. It is also okay not to want to have any type of sexual activity. I think it, it, it varies. And I, I also think it's really important to have these different ways for people to consume that information because they actually said so they might not feel comfortable, but maybe sitting down and, you know, listening in a private space where you can just absorb and not open up about your own experience that can be helpful as well. And I think that's where sometimes support groups can actually be hard, can be too much in a way, right? If you're not ready to share that expectation. Um, and so I think having as many ways for people to hear about 
hard topics, whether it be sexual health or mental health, whatever, you know, relationships, gender roles, that sometimes they want to listen and not feel pressured to contribute or to share. And that's okay. And that is a, is a great connection to social media and survivorship, especially for women. Um, I think I tell my patients that are part of Facebook groups and Instagram groups and all that, it's very important to have a sense of community. But I tell them not to co compare their insides with other people's outsides. Because I have patients that run the Boston Marathon, right? I, 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 I know you're wrong. I can't run. But, <laughs> right? But like, so I have some patients that are like, oh, why can I run the Boston Marathon? And I'm like, do you run the marathon before you were diagnosed with lung cancer? Mm -hmm. No. You know, we're not going to change who we are intrinsically with the disease. So I tell them to be very careful because sometimes these groups can be like a restaurant review. What I mean is people that are doing great, great, mm -hmm. right down, and people that are doing very poorly. So the big chunk of patients may be just spectators and don't share their experience. Yeah, because a, a lot of my women do that. And related to that, I think we need to talk about the, the complementary medicine in lung cancer. Because lung cancer is, has not only the stigma, so it has the belief that it's a fatal, that is, you know, a three-month disease and people don't. I have a patient right now that's 12 years out. We metastatic lung cancer. I have 10 years, eight years, seven years. Mm -hmm. But there is still the belief that you get lung cancer and you die in a matter of months. That is not true anymore. So because of that, because of that belief in the general population, a lot of patients go to complementary medicine. And a big proponent of complementary medicine is it's done correctly. And, and I call it complementary mm -hmm. instead of alternative. Alternative is when you don't do cancer treatment and you decide to do the therapy. You know, it's an alternative to the standardized care. Complementary is what complements to it, right? And a big proponent, I talk to my patients, but I think it's very important that there is an open communication because some of these, particularly women, I see younger women, they want to do everything that's possible. And I was diagnosed with a very bad condition two years ago. I was doing complementary medicine too, right? You want to do everything you can. Just to be very careful and discuss with your doctor because some of these complementary agents can inhibit how you eliminate your cancer drug. So I had a patient that had liver failure because he was preventing the target therapy to be eliminated. And I had another patient that the cancer grew because the T was accelerating the metabolism of the chemotherapy. So the chemotherapy wasn't staying in her body long enough to work for the cancer. So I think what we try to do everything we can is very important to have an open communication. And if your doctor doesn't feel comfortable, Every cancer center, or a lot of cancer centers, have complementary medicine groups that can provide guidance. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of things in social media that look very appealing, right? Like some of the things that my patients show me, it's like, oh, they even have a website, and the yeah. website has animations, and this guy is called AKA Dr. Saw. Mm -hmm. So it is very appealing and looks very legit. I actually, some of these websites look better than my own institution website, but you have to be very careful because you don't want to jeopardize the treatment. And that complementary medicine really works. Acupuncture really works. Meditation really works. Yeah. Certain types of food and habits. Yoga is very helpful for my patients. Yeah. So 
I, I just wanted to bring that up because that's something that I have conversations with my ladies all the time. I think that's a really important point because as we're talking about social media and I know we need to wrap up, but I, I will just say one point that, you know, social media has its good and it's bad. And I think you have to just take everything with a grain of salt. My number one piece of advice, what I always say is look who's sharing that information. Where is it coming from? Is it a credible source? And if you're not sure, reach out and ask the people who quote claim themselves as experts or claim to cure cancer. And that's a red flag, number one, but if they don't have credentials to back that up, you know, and they're selling you a really expensive product, that's probably not going to work. And a lot of these things are cash, right? I have a patient that went to this clinic and in order to be seen, it was only cash. And I, I don't, you know, I, I just think it's certain red flags and talk to your doctor. I, I'm very open with my patients about that. And I open that communication. No, every doctor is the same, but I ask them. Um, and if they want to do certain things, we find a way to do it safely. Exactly. Like, um, I have a patient right now that's in a diet and we're making it work, but I don't want her to lose a lot of weight. She wants to do the diet. So there's always like a middle point that you can find. Um, because we are beyond drugs. There's a lot of things that really help. Like my dream would be like that every patient walks into the cancer center and they give them headphones for meditation, guided meditation when they're waiting for their appointment instead of the news. I don't know why we keep putting the news. Like, yeah. It's a very stressful waiting room. Let's just put the news. I know. And then we wonder why their blood pressure is high when they, you know, you get in there. Yeah, they should put something like, you know, like make you happy. Some cat, cat, I love cat videos. <laughs> I like some cat videos or, yeah. you know, like. Not the news. <laughs> Who wants to watch that? Yeah. It's a very tense environment. But the summary is self-care is part of cancer care. And that includes sexual health. That includes, you know, yeah. care beyond just your treatment for cancer, but taking time for you. Many women become cancer patients, they're patients with cancer, and they haven't dropped any of the responsibilities, and it can be a lot. Wow. Um, and I, I know we're coming to time, but the main thing is I want to convey is that lung cancer is a disease of women. We need to bring awareness to our women everywhere. And if you feel like you're being gaslighted or somebody's not listening to you because you have chest pressure or cough, find a new doctor or find a new provider because you only have, you know, your health is so important. And I'm tired of hearing this story of women's complaining for months and nothing happens until they start coughing out blood and then it's too late. Too late. Thank you so much. This was so informative. Where, I know you do a lot on social media. You're one of the oncology social media experts. Um, so where can people find you and connect with you? So I'm at Narjas Flores and via Twitter. And I'm learning from you about Instagram. <laughs> I'm learning, I'm getting there. I'm at Dr. Narjas and Instagram. I'm learning from you. I'm learning from Dr. Arwell um, because we learn from each other. And Instagram, it made me care for a little bit. But I'm getting out there now. It's fun. It's a fun place. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. So much to take away 
but I'm going to leave you with a couple of key takeaway points. Number one, we are seeing younger women with lung cancer. And honestly, we are seeing younger people with cancer in general. And because people are presenting younger, sometimes their symptoms get mistaken for other things. And it takes, as Dr. Flores said, a while to get worked up. And so if you are listening to this, it's important to be aware of the symptoms, but also to advocate for yourself and push if you feel something is wrong and something is not right to push until you get answers and a workup. Number two, and this is really a message for both for everybody, including doctors and other healthcare professionals, is that we must stop seeing cancer as black and white and truly as a result of interactions in our patients' lives and how treatment and side effects are all impacted by that. Number three, we must, we must talk about sexual health in cancer. And I think we must recognize that sexual health discussions vary depending on the cancer type. And I think what Dr. Flores has done with the Shawl study and really transforming how we think about sexual health and lung cancer is truly remarkable. And lastly, number four, complementary medicine has a role to play in cancer care. And I truly believe that. But with that said, we always want to, you know, watch for those red flags and involve your healthcare team in making your treatment choices. I hope you found this episode helpful, educational, and learned something. I know that I did. You can find Dr. Flores on Twitter at Nargist Flores MD. And you can also find her on Instagram at Dr. Narjas. I urge you to follow her. She posts incredible stuff and to connect with her. I hope you have a wonderful day. Get out and move. And I will see all of you soon. 